Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Monday, January 31st. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris as we begin our 2022 position preview series, which, in a brilliant stroke of genius, I decided should begin with shortstops because we were watching the NFC Championship game yesterday and kind of planning out the next month. And instead of starting with catcher, which is the most boring position, it occurred to at least one of us, maybe both of us kind of simultaneously, the light bulb went off. Shortstop's a great position. Let's start there. People want to talk about all the great players they can get from this position. A lot of multi-eligible guys available as well. So the way our position preview series is going to work, we're going to use recent ADPs looking at the NFBC for the last two weeks, and we'll keep that moving over the course of the series. We're not just going to take a snapshot today and use that a month from now as we close the series out later, uh, but just see where things are going. Talk about players within the clusters where they're being drafted. Talk about who's undervalued, who's overvalued, and try to get through all the relevant questions about the players at this position. So a lot to get to over the course of an hour but shortstop being the amazing position that it is, you know, features three players going consistently in the first half of the first round. That, of course, would be Trey Turner, Fernando Tatis Jr., and Bo Bichette. And really, Turner versus Tatis seems to be the debate for the first overall pick for a lot of people who end up in that position. So if you were lucky enough to have that spot, A, would you take one of those two? And B, which one do you prefer? Yeah, I think it's like a, it's almost a classic decision of, of floor versus ceiling uh, where I think Tatis's ceiling is higher and, and Turner's floor is higher. However, Turner's ceiling is pretty good too. <laughs> and I think once you have someone that has that combination, you go for the safer one, I believe. Now there are situations where it's, you know, there are leagues where you not only want to win your league, but you want to maybe beat everybody, you know, sort of the NFBC thing where like there's the overall um, and in those cases, maybe a little bit more high risk, uh, high variance uh, selection like Tatis would make sense because in order for you to beat every fantasy league team, you would probably need to have the best uh, first round selection possible, which would be drafting a lot more for ceiling, which would mean Tatis goes first. But I think for most of us, we're trying to win our league and, and just our league and Turner is is the number one player for that. And he's shown us over time there's a little more power there than we thought there would be earlier in his career. I think durability, less of a concern than there is with Tatis, of course, with the shoulder. Tatis was amazing despite the shoulder injury in 2021. But when you have to split hairs, when you look at two players with projections above $40, if you run the Fangraphs auction calculator, throw in the bat projections or the bat X or ATC or whatever you like to use, you're probably going to see Turner and Tatis kind of standing alone, even ahead of Bo Bichette, despite the fact that they're relatively close in ADP. If I had that choice right now, I would take Turner as well. I think the quality of the Dodgers lineup, even with Corey Seager gone, even with Max Muncy banged up right now, that gives me a little more confidence in Turner as well, where I think those counting stats might be a tick better than they are for Tatis as well, but certainly a good spot to be in if you're picking at the top of your board. But I think the Bichette question that popped up for me was just looking at the drop in those projections. $42 each are the numbers I get. If I throw in 15 teams with the bat X and just hit go on the Fangraphs auction calculator, Tatis and Turner are sitting there in their own tier. Bo Bichette at $28 is the third shortstop, but... That's a big drop, a $14 difference. And I think the key difference when you look at the projections is that by the bad X's expectation, 
We're expecting, what, 10 fewer steals for Bo Bichette and a pretty significant drop in runs and RBIs compared to 2021 as well. I'm not sure I see as much of a drop as the system forecasts, but I do see just a little bit of a gap, maybe more like 5 to $7 between Turner and Tatis and Bo Bichette. Yeah, I mean, the way that it break down, breaks down is it's about a you know $4 difference, $5 difference when it comes to steals. Um, it's a $2 difference in runs and another sort of $2 difference in RBI. So that's where the, the $10 drop comes from. But it is worth pointing out, the bat is projecting Bo Bichette for fewer runs and fewer RBI by about 10 to 15 each uh, than any other projection system. Um, I do know that one thing that separates, uh, well, I can't say that, I can't say that not every projection system does this, but I know that, um, Derek, uh, regresses the league wide run, um, expectancy, sort of the league wide run environment every year to deal with ball issues. So he doesn't expect the ball to perform exactly as it did last year. Uh, he will actually kind of project the ball. Um, and I think that's a smart thing to do, but it also means that, uh, you have a high likelihood of either being right or wrong. You know what I mean? Um, and it's, it just reflects the difficulties we have as analysts with the fact that the ball seems to change every year. And there were two different balls, you know, last year. Um, so he could be correct though, because ostensibly if they use one ball next year, it would be the deadened ball that they were supposed to use all last year. So if the run environment goes down a little bit, uh, voila, uh, you could have uh, some regression. Also, Bo Bichette is not going to start the season in Dunedin, which was a big boon to their run scoring. Um, and Rodgers plays much more evenly. So maybe that's all factoring into that projection. However, um, I don't know if I personally see a full $10 drop uh, from those top two to, to Bo Bichette. Yeah, Bichette was 25 of 26 as a base dealer yeah. last season. So I just don't see him cutting the running down by half or even two-thirds. That just seems kind of bizarre given how effective he was. Um, not a guy that, compared to other first-rounders, he doesn't have an OBP that jumps off the page. So I guess that's probably where you lose a little bit of that run and RBI output as well. Or run output, not RBI in this case. Mm-hmm. It, just, it feels like picking nits. And if you open up the auction calculator with all hitters and see, well, who are the hitters that actually go in between Tatis and Turner and then Bichette, if you have all the other positions in there, you see names that make sense. You see Soto and Acuna and Vlad Jr., Shohei Otani, Harper Betts, Ramirez is in that cluster ADP-wise, Mike Trout, who goes usually late first round, early second round. Sal Perez gets a catcher bump, otherwise he wouldn't be in that group. And then you got uh, Devers and Ozzy Albies. So there's a couple surprising names sprinkled in. But when you add in the other names, it doesn't seem that ridiculous. And I think when you think about the NFBC, uh, stolen bases being as scarce as they are, and Bo Bichette being the rare stolen base guy that also is plus in batting average, I think that adds something to his appeal as well. So I don't have any problems with people that want to take Bichette as a top six hitter. I mean, I think Bichette versus Jose Ramirez is the debate that a lot of people are having when they're sitting at that part of the board. But this position is loaded. Like the second tier of this group is really strong. And for me, that kind of runs from Tim Anderson, who's going right around pick 35 right now, down to, 
I would say Wander. I would, I would end the second tier at Wander because I think he deserves to be in it. You got Anderson, you got Marcus Simeon, who also has second base eligibility. Trevor Story, we don't know where he's going to play just yet. Xander Bogarts, Francisco Lindor, and then Wander all going together in a cluster of about 20 picks. So just like it was last year and for the last couple of seasons, this is a loaded position where scarcity is not an issue. When we first started playing fantasy baseball, I think there was actual scarcity at shortstop to find the the stars that could actually make an impact with the bat. That is not the case anymore at all. Yeah, 100%. But it is interesting that uh, it's flipped so much on its head that uh, it's become a, a position of plenty for some for some and um, therefore a position to uh, wait on and to, I want to say punt, but sort of uh, in that uh, decision-making process of Bo Bichette versus Jose Ramirez, you might say, well, third base actually gets kind of hairy quicker than people expect. Um, I like, I'm going to take Jose Ramirez because I like shortstops downwind. That's okay if the projections are close, but I wouldn't piece out on shortstops generally because they are without a position adjustment, some of the best hitters in the game. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. uh, I did something on the auction calculator where you can just uh, sort by points, which is just what their their offensive line is worth without any positional value. And there's almost no change uh, to where the shortstops sit. Uh, they are among the best bats. They in the game today, we put our youngest players, uh, our youngest best stars at shortstop. Um, and, uh, you know, there's not really as much of a worry about defense because we have at least 30 young, amazing stars that can also play, uh, two ways, you know, that's, we just have, that's enough supply of that. Um, so that we don't have any more like, you know, defensive guys that are just out there holding it down for the team. You know, we don't, that doesn't happen as much anymore. Maybe Nick Ahmed, you know, but yeah, uh, but for the most part, now. these guys are the best bats in the game. So you know, you know, even if you if you don't get one of the top three, like it definitely makes sense to to jump into the second tier. They're still valuable players without the position attached to them. You know, I look at this group. Tim Anderson, I think, has just shown us that the batting average uh, is a skill that he owns. It's a, it's a roto skill that he owns at this point. He has power. He has some speed. He's a tick below average for power for the position, especially compared to the top end options, but I'm willing to make that trade off because I think the steals will be there. And if he can hit 280, 290 with the runs and RBIs that should come from a full healthy season in this version of the White Sox lineup, he could be a $30 player, even though the auction calculator puts him in this group of basically 20 to $22 guys. It's amazing. The auction calculator and these projections, they weren't out there when the ADP was starting to come together, right? This is just, this is just kind of a coincidence. They fit this well. Other projection systems may have steered decisions in this direction, but none of the players in that group is really an outlier. The only one who doesn't fit in order is Francisco Lindor. <laughs> and I think that's more about Corey Seager being a little undervalued. We'll get to him as part of tier three than it is about Lindor not belonging because Lindor, the thing that we like about this position these guys play every day. They don't fall into platoons. The top-end shortstops are max volume guys. So long as they are healthy, they play a ton. These are all great hitters who are at or near the top of the lineup. If they're not in the top of the lineup, they're in the heart of the lineup. They tick all of these boxes. So I think the question I have with Lindor is, how much do you look at last season and say, this is as bad as it can be as long as he's healthy? 
on a per game basis. And you know, maybe there's there's a lower a lower ceiling than there used to be because the speed has fallen off just a little bit. But I look at him and say, hey, 30-20 was on the table just a couple of years ago, and the Mets offense is actually getting better. The the, the additions they made this offseason actually help his counting stats quite a bit. I think Lindor's actually being a little bit under-projected right now coming off of the worst slash line of his career. Yeah, and I think that the shape of his season and the injuries also removed some of the luster from the counting stats that, you know, if he had played a full season, if you prorate them out, I know, you know, don't want really necessarily to do that. And in fact, I think in this case, prorating misses the fact that he was getting going and then got hurt again. And there's a chance he had a hot month in him that that would have made everything look a lot better. Uh, but even if you just prorate out what he did, um, he would have had 25 homers and 12, 13 steals. And, uh, you know, I, I do think it was the bottom of the barrel when it comes to his batting average. So um, if you just give him that next year, and that's what projections are doing for the most part, just give him a 260 batting average, 270 batting average, like he's had his whole career and give him back the 25 homers and the 12 to 15 steals that he was pretty much uh, prorated for last year. That's what projections are doing. They're not a- they're not asking him to go all the way back. And that's why I like him. I mean, and one of the reasons I would say to anybody, even if you're not doing an auction, use the auction calculator because you can really see tiers. So now we talked about how Bobuchet maybe is one of the $30 shortstops. Once you get past those three $30 shortstops, Xander Bogarts, $23. Marcus Simeon, $23. Tim Anderson, $23. Trevor Story, $23. Javier Baez, $21. Francisco Lindor, $20. That's, to me, like a whole tier. Now, Lindor is going 50 plus in ADP. And Simeon's going 33. So that's why I really like, I've seen a lot of teams come through on Twitter where I'm like, I like these teams that are getting Lindor in the fourth and fifth they they and and you know adp of 50 is just an average there are ones where he's dropping into the fifth and sixth man if you if you can get lindor in the fifth or sixth i'm super happy about that so much uh, about this group it kind of feels like players who are underrated in the national conversations right not in fantasy circles at all but just in terms of the amount of attention they get relative to what they can provide I think the best argument against drafting Marcus Simeon where he goes is the availability of Lindor around later, just because Texas is going to be a more difficult place to hit for Marcus Simeon. The power probably comes down just because of the ballpark. You mentioned Dunedin earlier. He had that for part of the season last year with the Jays. And even though the Rangers are pushing a ton of chips in right now, that supporting cast is not what he had with him in Toronto either. So it's for reasons out of his control. It just seems almost impossible that Marcus Simeon could repeat what he did in 2021 also projected for the most amount of plate appearances of <clears throat> any shortstop in baseball <laughs> i guess probably projected for the most amount of plate appearances in baseball which makes sense because he keeps putting up a ton of plate appearances but we've talked about it on the show before health is really hard to really nail down even an iron man like marcus Simeon could run into a season where he doesn't hit that same plate appearance threshold and i think for him he's a little bit of an accumulator in that fashion where you know, when if he gets 670 plate appearances, he'll hit a lot of marks and, and make the value. But if he's more like 570 for whatever reason, um, it may may just not look good at all. This is a group of players. I don't have a lot of reasons to 
not draft them. I mean, you look at Xander Bogarts. He played hurt last year and played really well. Even Tim Anderson, I mentioned the missed time for him. Like I, I think if he's healthy for 150, you're going to be really happy with what you get. I think the most challenging player to make a decision on is a guy that I really like in the long term. It's Wander Franco. Like, what is year two going to look like from him? I mean, I, I just the ADP relative to the group is the lowest of the group. It's possible with a big spring that people would get even more excited about him if we get a spring, of course. I don't know what to do with Wander in redraft leagues right now because I don't have doubts about him at all as a player, but we're still working off 70 games of an amazing rookie season for a guy who was 20 years old a year ago. It's just, there's so few comps that scaling up the growth it's basically an exercise in dreaming. Like you can, you could tell me any story you want about Wander, and I'd probably believe you. <laughs> but that's also not like that's not how leagues are necessarily won. Like it's it's so easy to see pie in the sky, but at a position with so much talent, so much floor, what do you do with a guy that seems to have almost a limitless ceiling? There's a lot to like in that his contact rate ported over to the major leagues. I think that we can believe the low strikeout rate. We can believe the swinging strike rate. Um, and so that's a really good place to start. That's that's a good place to make him a 290. He's projected to be a 290 hitter, 299 by the bad X. So, you know, that is believable, and that's a really good foundation, especially for, you know, 12-team leagues and leagues where, you know, just generally roto leagues, protecting your batting average as long as possible is great for a couple of reasons, which is you're going to have to win batting average, first of all. But then secondly, you open yourself up to so many more cheap power and steals options later on if you protected that batting average. You can't get Joey Gallo if you uh, pick, I'm thinking, what's a low batting average guy at the top here? Uh, yeah, if you build around, you know, Jose Ramirez or yeah. you know, some of those types of early rounders that do everything else really well, but they're they're not standouts in that category. You get a couple of guys like that in the foundation it catches up with you. Yeah. So, yeah, you just want to protect that batting average long. And so I like that part of Wanda Franco. I have to say that the other stuff that I look at um, in short samples, he was okay at, you know, the other two things that I think are really powerful other than sort of strikeout rate and, and swing strike rate are reach rate and barrel rate. We talk about that all the time. It's practically in the name of the, of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and his barrel rate, 4.9%, not really, that's like, uh, it's basically average for uh, a position player, like a starting position player. The max EV wasn't standout, um, and the reach rate at 28% um, was actually, because that is pitch info reach rate, that was worse than average. His 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 reach rate was worse than average. Um, so... I don't know. That could change. You know, he's gonna he's gonna take more pitches as he goes gets older. He's probably gonna grow into more power. But the question is, how will that power grow? Will that power grow a little bit or a lot? The projections say that he's kind of worth where he's going, but they also project him for like eighteen homers and eight stolen bases. Which, um, you know, if he does that, I don't think he wins your league for you. You know. But if he just does the projection and you draft him where he's going, I don't think you're disappointed. I think you end up pretty happy because the counting stats will be good. Mm-hmm. The average is amazing. The power is solid. It's non-zero speed at a minimum. Uh, the what, base what, stealing we success about? rates are low. What are we talking about? Uh, if, if his ADP is at 54, it means he's going in the fourth round of a 15-teamer. Yeah. I mean, it is 
exciting. He's a young player that could he could do the most of the stuff that he could do is good, you know, better than what you're paying for. So I, I, I'm into that. I'm not going to have like a no Wander Franco uh, uh, policy. But, you know, Gene Segura is going to hit 290 with 15 homers and 10 stolen bases, too. I knew Gene was coming to the conversation. <laughs> I didn't know how early today, but I knew he'd get in. <laughs> this is not the type... If he does what he's projected, like, and he couldn't provide you that value, it might be fine. But this is not what you're ex- trying to get in the fourth round. You know what I'm saying? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think this is a floor that is fantastic mm-hmm. for the player this young. Let's just say he was a veteran with that projection. Where would a veteran with a near 300 average projection in 2010 where would we want to draft that player if it was like a 27-year-old we're like, yeah, we're pretty sure we know who this guy is. Later. There aren't that many guys like that, though. And if there's one picking of the nits that I can give is I'm not even sure about that 10 stolen base projection. No, the success rates have been brutal in the minors. Like The the sprint speed's good, 85th, 85th percentile on sprint speed, but he might not need to steal bases. He may be a superstar without that. And... His, I wouldn't say I would. His body, like he doesn't steal. He doesn't strike me as a. He strikes me as like a burgeoning, like a emerging power hitter more than he. Like when I look at him, I'm like, oh, not, this guy's going to steal a ton of bases. And then on top of that, one of the things that's sticky year to year um, uh, is stolen base attempt rates. So he just didn't even attempt it that often last year, you know. So if if he attempts three stolen bases every 300 plate appearances. He's going to steal like four bases next year. Does the makeup of your roster dictate your interest in Wander? Thinking about it from a hypothetical, let's say because he's going like mid-fourth in a 15-team, or let's say you go pitcher in the first round, whether that's Cole or Burns, doesn't necessarily matter. You come back through, you get a hitter that can do everything in the second round. You come back through in the third, and you grab maybe a second pitcher. So you go two aces early, or you at least go ace, elite closer, one bat. He circled back through to the fourth. Wander still there mid-round. Does that build where you're more pitching heavy make you want to take a little extra possible ceiling in this spot? Or would you actually prefer Wander in a different kind of build where you're just pounding hitting early on and, and waiting on pitching? Or does it not matter? I, I just I do think there's maybe a case to be made for him to fit some types of builds better than others. I actually think he would fit better in a, in a more hitting-friendly build uh, because... In that two hitters in the first four rounds, Bill, that you're talking about, like if he just gives you the projection, then you're going to be short on runs and RBI. Like you didn't get like a meaty slugger type. You know what I mean? Uh, You got a guy who gives you a little bit of everything. Whereas like if I took Jose Ramirez in the first round and a pitcher in the second and then another hitter, then Wander Franco would be my third best hitter and he would pair really well with my first round hitter. You know what I mean? We just talked about that. Where you kind of bring back that batting average back up, you know? Yeah, you'd use him as a way to offset some batting average risk with one of your first two bats more likely than try to use him as the, hey, you know what? Maybe he's a first rounder next year. I got him in the fourth and I stacked up my pitching early and that's how I'm going to surprise everybody. Yeah, I think so. Fair enough. That's that's how I see him. And so, you know, he'll be on some teams, especially in auction teams. You could, you you know, if you think that he's going to go for a certain price, you can you can kind of fit him onto your team easier than if it's just has to be fourth round, you know? 
see, there's always going to be someone that loves Wander in the room, though. So if all these guys are projected for 20 to 22, someone's going to pay 25 plus for Wander. And one or two of these guys will slide to like 18, 19. I have to tell you, I don't anticipate having many Wander Franco shares this year. Yeah, I hope for your sake that the breakout is in 2023, if, uh, <laughs> if that's how it goes. The, the breakout, like it didn't already happen, but like the 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 jump into first round status, because it seems like that is uh, a future that he is going to reach. It's just a matter of when. If he hits 295 next year with 18 homers and four stealing, stolen bases, I'll have tons of shares in 2023. Because he'll slide a little bit. Yeah. Because <laughs> he'll go 20 picks later next year. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense. Totally makes sense. Again, part of the problem here is that you can look at Wander and then say, yeah, I love the ceiling, love what he's already shown us, but I could also just keep waiting. If you wait for tier three, which begins, you know, 10 picks or so after Wander goes, you start to see Javier Baez and Jess Chisholm, Corey Seager, who I think is being underdrafted despite the Texas concerns I outlined with Marcus Simeon, Jorge Polanco, Bobby Witt Jr., and Carlos Correa. These are shortstops that still go inside the top 100, but are not going inside the top 50. Three of those guys have second base eligibility, Baez, Chisholm, and Polanco. Now we're starting to see some higher variant players. Like There are some guys in that group that they're not going to be wasted picks because I don't think any of them could lose so much playing time other than wit, theoretically. I don't think any of them could lose so much playing time that you're just replacing them outright on your roster in a mixed league. Maybe there's a, a downside where Jazz Chisholm completely falls apart, but I don't I don't think so. I think because of his speed, he's got a nice roto floor because I don't think they're going to go away from him. What do you feel like you're doing with this group in general? Because I think it's it's a lot of guys that have either been higher up in this exercise in the past or guys that we think could take a massive leap in the case of, of Witt and possibly Chisholm that have some flaws they have to address in the short term. Uh, I may not have a lot of players in this tier, honestly. The one thing I will say is that uh, I see that Baez, Chisholm, and Witt um, have similar risk profiles, Mm -hmm. similar uh, possible issues, um, similar ways they could collapse or, or, or be great. And I'm actually more inclined to take the younger ones. Because I just see that, you know, 29 years old is not that old, but it is two or three years past peak. And uh, I think those slumps that we see from Javier Baez will turn into a full season slump at some point, And I don't want to be left holding the bag. So if I'm going to take a player that strikes out too much and reaches too much, but still has good uh, bad ball numbers and good speed and stuff, then I'm going to take the younger ones. So of that three, I'm most likely the the kind of combination of track record and risk, I'm most likely to take Jazz. Because he's shown us enough. He's younger. I don't think he's likely to collapse. Baez, I don't know if I'm saying that he's necessarily going to collapse this year, but one of these next two or three years, he's going to collapse. Right. That approach, barring unforeseen change, is just so problematic. And if the speed continues to dry up as he ages as it always does it's one fewer way he adds value i think one thing that i hadn't thought a lot about before now is just like going to detroit it's a team on the rise a lot of young talent coming up not necessarily all guys who are going to be there on opening day not necessarily all guys who are going to figure it out quickly it's a step down for him compared to a lot of the supporting cast he's had during his time in chicago Again, not the reason Baez was effective. The power-speed combo was a huge part of it, and the quality of the contact he made was a huge part of it. But those seasons where 
he was pushing high 80s run and RBI totals on top of the power-speed combo. That's going to be a little more difficult for him with the Tigers. At least in the first half of the season, he might fall behind those paces. I don't worry about players on big contracts. I know our friends, Glenn Colton and Rick Wolf have that as part of the smart system, the guys that move to a new team and sign a big deal. You could see Javier Baez being the kind of player that wants to earn every dollar of that contract on every swing for the first month of the season, and he takes an aggressive approach and cranks it up even further. Like That wouldn't surprise me, but I'm with you in that I, I see that kind of risk in a young player. I think the young players tend, tend, typically have speed that's more stable, and I'd rather bank on that coming through even if we get the flaws than bank on everything holding together for Baez as he gets closer and closer to age 30. I, I'm with the projections on Seager. I, I don't know why he's going here. I, I think Seager is being underdrafted. I think Seager is good in batting average, good in power. He'll be fine in runs and RBIs. Yes, it won't be as good as it was with the Dodgers. But other than injury risk, I, I don't have any other reason to explain why he's being drafted probably 20 to 30 picks later than he should be. I wonder if it's this idea that and uh, I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't want to make it the way I'm phrasing it, like bias people against it, but like the idea that you kind of want certain stats from certain positions. That he doesn't run and that's a problem because he's a shortstop. I mean, you look up and down, um, you know, the shortstop thing and they all have good numbers for stolen bases, except for Xander Bogarts, who sometimes gets underdrafted. Uh, and then Seager and Korea are both $15 shortstops. They're right there with Wander Franco. But their ADPs aren't. Correa's is right now like forty points lower than uh, than Wander Franco's. So, but his projection is like three or four dollars less. So, and that's why I didn't want to bias it. I don't want to say that it's it's wrong, because if you don't get steals from your shortstop, then you have to get steals somewhere that you didn't expect, maybe, or. You have to hit hard on the outfield or something. Like you really, you do have to get those steals that you normally get from your shortstop somewhere else. So it is something to think about. But if you have a strategy going into your draft or auction, it seems like you can make some bones getting Correa or uh, Seager as your starting shortstop and spending for the speed somewhere else. I wonder if you'll see a lot of people who end up taking Adalberto Mondesi at third base, where you don't usually get a lot of speed and you get a lower batting average from him, people that go with that build, if they're going to be the ones that end up with Seager as a shortstop or Correa as a shortstop, or maybe some combination of both, a shortstop and MI situation where, hey, I'm making up for the average, I'm getting all the run production, all the things that Mondesi doesn't do all that well, I'm getting that undervalued from Correa and Seager, and I've got the bulk of my speed coming from one guy. Risky, of course, to Mondesi's a, a conversation onto himself, but I, I wonder if that's the type of, of build that will steer into these shortstops. There's another type that I kind of like a little better even because you know, Adalberto Mondesi's in that super high-risk profile package that I've never <laughs> been a big fan of. Um, what about players that took a second-base eligible shortstop earlier and just said, man, Correa and you know Seager have fallen too far. I'm just going to pick another shortstop and push... Uh, and use Trey Turner at second. Right. Yes. I, I think that'll be a, a common a sort of thing too. Plan too. The other multi-position guy in this range, Jorge Polanco. I mean, he showed us 2019 was not a fluke. It was not just the, the byproduct of the rabbit ball. I did not think Jorge Polanco had an encore like that in him. I just, I didn't see it. 
uh, added some speed as well compared to that 2019 campaign. I mean, more homers than ever. 33 homers, not a good base dealer. He was 11 for 17, and not even necessarily a great real-life player relative to his rotisserie production. I'm not going to sit here and say a four-war player isn't good, but a 269, 323, 503 line is a weird line for a middle infielder. What's next for him? I mean, the projections scale down the power, but I actually think he's going to hold the stolen bases. And, and I'm a little surprised by that. Why do you think they're having him hold the steals? I really don't know. Like, it's a low OBP profile, or at least a lower OBP profile. And the success team. rates have never been good. It, it wasn't like 11 for 17 last year was an outlier. He was 4 for 6 in the shortened season. He was 4 for 7 in 2019. He was for 7 18. for 14 in 2018. It's not good. Yeah. Yeah, I would expect uh, you know, and and even the the batting average projections are kind of amazing. Uh the batting average projections are all better than his combined batting average in 2021. Mhm. Um which I don't I'm not saying that uh, cuz I've got Polanco as my shortstop in 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 um Devils Rejects and I'm super happy that he rebounded and and he's part of our 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 plan for this year, but um and and I'll take him if he drops, but my personal projection is more like two seventy twenty five and five. I think that's a safer way to go about it if you're penciling him in. And if you take that off of his auction value, um, I think you make him more of a Dansby Swanson type, uh, Willie Adamas. And now now put Jorge Polanco in among that. Let's play. Would you rather Jorge Polanco, Dansby Swanson, Willie Adamas? Because those are all kind of fun, you know, 80 to 100 ADP guys. Their stat cast numbers are all great. Uh, Swanson and Adamas strike out exactly the same amount, if that might surprise you. Is that true? I think with the move to Milwaukee, Adamas' K rate should come down over a full season now, right? Because the trop was a big part of why that K rate was as elevated as it was, but... Under 20% where Polanco lives? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think we have year-over-year consistency with Adamas' barrel rate that we don't have with Polanco. So that's one reason to at least reconsider Polanco being clearly better by ADP. Best strikeout rate of the group. Your point is that, they, that they're all pretty close in expectations, and I think you're dead on because I don't trust Polanco's speed. His average is more like okay or good, not great even though the batting average or the, the K rate is nice and low, there's probably some bounce back with the offense around him this year. Supporting cast could be a little better, so that could help level out some of the possible drop-off in, in home runs. And he is multi-position eligible, but is he that much better than Swanson and Adames? No. If I'm picking straight up, if, if Polanco falls a couple rounds and all three of them are at the top of the queue, I'm still taking Polanco because of the lower K rate but I'm not taking Polanco where he goes because I don't think it's worth it. There's something better I can do with that spot. Yeah, there's a little bit of like, why take that if you could take the others later? And I was wrong. Uh, Swanson did strike out a little bit less. I have I had another player comp on Willie Damas and, Sw- and Swanson for later for the deep rounds. But yeah. uh, but I, I think, yeah, I think <laughs> all things equal, I'll take Polanco over those guys. But I do think that it's a little bit like, why why spend on Polanco here when Swanson uh, and Adamus are, 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 are there later? Slightly different risk packages. I think Adamus' poor plate discipline could come back a little bit. I know it, 
you know, a lot of it could be tied up into the lights in, in, in Trop of Canna Field. And, you know, he kind of looked so different as a brewer. But, I, you know, when you just look at his, 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 at his reach rate, um, you know, it's still, it's still not a very good one. So he could regress a little bit when it comes to batting average, strikeout rate, some of that stuff. Uh, but the quality of contact uh, between Adamus and Swanson both had this identical barrel rates last year. Um, uh, you know, if I had both those guys staring at me on the queue, you know, I just put I'd put all three in there, and when Polanco went, decide to take one of the other guys. You know. Yep, I think that's a good way to go, and I, I'd, I'd probably lean. Dansby over Adames right now because I expect Atlanta's offense to be better than the Brewers' offense as those are both constructed. Before we go all the way into four, the Bobby Witt Jr. problem, which mm. we kind of talked about a little bit last week, it's not that I don't think he can be great. I just I don't like the ADP for the risk relative to what you can do by waiting and taking that shot later. You can take guys outside the top 200 that have power and speed and are high-risk, high-reward players. And yes, Bobby Witt Jr. could be better than those guys in the long run, but why Why would you want to spend a pick in the back of the sixth round on Bobby Witt Jr. right now? Like, Doesn't that seem like it's too much risk for the potential payoff? The only thing I'll say is that like, you know, steals are really tough to get from old guys. <laughs> so... You know, I could see the impetus to want to take a young guy that you think can steal maybe 25 bases next year in the sixth round, you know? I mean, already by the sixth round, people were going, oh, did I get enough steals? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a great season in the minors, split between double A AA and triple A, 33 homers, 29 stolen bases. The average was there. OBP was strong because he walked 9% of the time at both stops. WRC Plus had him in the 140s at both levels. The risk is playing time. Do they start the season with him in the big leagues? Yeah, I think they start him up, you know, as soon as they've captured the extra year of service time, assuming we're still playing by those rules. I think it still comes back to the hit tool at the big league level might take a little bit of time. If that happens, if he's buried in the bottom third of the order, is he giving us enough in the other categories? If the average is low, the power is okay, and the speed is the main thing we're getting initially, Will that be enough to justify an inside the top 180p? It certainly could be. I just don't think, I don't think it's an obvious. You must draft him at this price because he's going to be an immediate star sort of thing. And when that happens, I look at the players in that range, even outside of this position, and say, I trust these guys to be twenty dollar guys. And Wit could be, he could be a thirty dollar guy in his rookie season, or he could be a five dollar guy. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's enough of a, a likelihood that he's a five dollar guy that I'm letting someone else take on that possible $30 player at that price. Yeah. And if there's a disconnect, because it's like, you know, Bobby Witt is either the first or second or third best prospect in baseball. And, you know, the hype is, is huge and it's probably real and he's probably going to be a very good player. Um, the disconnect is that in fantasy, you need them to hit their, you know, 90th percent. Like you need, you need him to be a star. Whereas the Royals uh, will be happy with him as an above average major league player and even a, a number one type prospect uh, label like that, that would be a good outcome for him. If he was like one of the top seven shortstops in baseball, 
you know, long term, that you know, like the Royals will take it. That would be a good outcome for a top prospect. Um, and fantasy players would be like, "Why he's so overrated?" And the the way that that could happen is that that twenty three percent strikeout rate from last year turns to twenty six, twenty seven in the major leagues, as opposed to the like the twenty two he's projected for. And the reason that could happen is. You know, even prospectors who really like him and have put them in their top three have, as Fangraphs has had, put a 40 present future 50 on his hit tool. And uh, to to anybody who doesn't necessarily know the scouting parlance off the top of their heads, 40 is below average and 50 is just slightly above average. I just, I see the possibility with the gulf between the AAA pitching and the big league pitching right now of the K rate jumping above 30% initially, even if it doesn't stay there, even if we're only talking about that for two months or three months to begin his career before he starts to figure it out, that's a a decent amount of time where you're talking about a guy that could hit 210 Mm -hmm. while popping homers and and stealing some bases. Uh, The projections highlight the risk really well. He's projected to be about an $8 player, and that puts him probably just outside the top 20 or so at the position when you start adding up all these guys that are multi-position eligible. So Inside the top 100, just a little bit too much for me in redraft, even if you have them in a keeper or dynasty league, even though I love that because long, long term, there's still a lot to like. Especially because there's a name on tier four that I think is that, what, do we have a word for the, like, not this, but that? like the. Uh, we never really landed on one for sure. We had a bunch of, of interesting suggestions, but... Eat this, not that. Yeah, we don't want to eat players. Um, yeah. yeah. Spit. There was spit a spit on the, one take, in there. Yeah. <laughs> swing spit or take. Spit or take. Spit or, spit or swing. Spit or uh, swing. Yeah. Yeah. But that sounds uh, kind of sexy for some reason. So that's too weird. We're not, <laughs> yeah. we're not going there either. We'll, we'll keep workshopping that. But tier four, just for names to include, there's some multi position guys here like Jake Cronenworth, Dansby's in this group, Willie Adames, you know, Chris Taylor, another multi position guy, Glaber, who could add second base if the Yankees do, in fact, get their shortstop. Luis Urias, who also has eligibility at second and third, which is pretty nice. Brendan Rodgers, who's got second base eligibility, and Ahmed Rosario, all in this cluster. So that really that covers you pretty much from 120 to 160 right now in ADP. Easily available guys outside the first eight rounds of a 15-team league. I think Dansby Swanson does stand out to me as someone who's undervalued. Projections pointed to that as well. And Willie Adames, too. I love this, tier. Willie Adames, the Brewers mix and match at a bunch of positions like a lot of teams do, but Willie Adames plays every day when he's healthy. Yeah. And I believe in what he was doing. I I think the numbers support what he said about the trop to the point where in the 130 range, I have no problem drafting Willie Adames as my my middle infielder if uh, if that's what I'm looking to fill at that spot. And I think in Dancy Swanson, Willie Adames, and Gliber Torres, you actually have three players that have upside remaining, that have the season there is a season where they put it all together you know and have their best season they're in the right age range for that they're in the right place you know they've been in the same place for a while so it's not like they got traded to a new team as all this pressure or they signed a new contract like they've been in this place now you know uh willie Thomas loves milwaukee dansby loves atlanta I don't know how Clyver feels about New York, but uh, it's a nice yeah. park for him. And when I look at at him, I see uh, quality of contact, uh, you know, 8% bail rate last year. Um, I see uh, quality takes, you know. And with Torres, uh, here's this 
8% bail rate and uh, an ab- above average uh, reach rate. He lines up really well with uh, Carlos Correa uh, in terms of, of having both those aspects. Jake Cronenworth, uh, similar aspects. Um, and I think those actually describe him pretty well because I think he should have a good batting average and he should be able to hit 15 to 20 homers at the very least with that quality of contact. And he's going to steal 20 bases. So he's, I think he absolutely belongs in that, like, if I can't get Cronenworth or I waited too long on Dansby, I, I've actually, in fact, uh, targeted Glaber in, in, in some drafts this year. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways for him to come back. And I, I know a lot of the damage a few years ago came against the Orioles, but that's not the entirety of what he did that year. The power slide has been very surprising given how young he is. At price, I'm in on Glaber as well. No no reservations uh, where he's going now. If he shoots up 30 or 40 picks because he has a great spring and everybody kind of gets into it again, maybe at that point it's not as much of a, an obvious good value, but where he's going right now, it makes all the sense I in the think, world. I yeah, think right now the hate is too has gone too far. Like Here's a guy who should hit for a good batting average and go 20-20. Right. And I, I guess maybe a little up. more skeptical about the speed than you are. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm not sure he's going to always provide that. I think if, if the power comes back, I think he probably sheds some of the speed and is more of like an 8-10 to 10 steal sort of guy. Mm-hmm. But if you get more, that's a nice bonus. So... The interesting thing with with Gleyber too is I thought batting average would be a strength for him, and he doesn't strike out that much, so it really should be. He shouldn't be a 240, 250 type hitter. He should be like a 270, 280 guy with a K rate like that. But the quality of the batted balls obviously is an issue if, uh, if that continues to be the case. The projections like him as more of a 250 hitter with 20 homers and maybe, maybe low double-digit steals. But that's low. That's a low batting average for a guy who, uh, for career and projections, is pretty much a nine percent walk rate, twenty percent strikeout rate. I think they're assuming that there's that the quality of contact for him is a uh, a given, right? That there's a certain level of quality of contact, and that's where he's at. And I would look at his career and say, I I see enough to be positive about it. There's some good bail rates in there, but his quality of contact is all over the place. You know, his hard hit yeah. rate has gone up and down. His max EV has gone up and down. His barrels have gone up and down. So, and in fact, I kind of see it as, yes, he's projected for 260 and 20 homers, but there's a guy in there who can hit 280 with 30 homers. Do you have anybody else in tier four that you think is a standout value? I, I like Urias in, in uh, drafting holds as a uh, cheaper version of Cronenworth. Um, but I do think there's some risk that the way playing time shakes down in Milwaukee is not a hundred percent good for Urias in that he's, he's at the places where he could be platooned, right? Like he's in, he's not Adamus. Like they gave him the shot at being Adamus and he's not Adamus. So now he's in the, you know, the group at third and second. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think for me, Ahmed Rosario is so safe playing time wise that I think he can be a good accumulator, but I like players like that more in AL only leagues than I do in mixed leagues because I'm not sure there's enough ceiling there for me to get really excited about him in a 12 team mixed league, for example. The projection is is close to uh, Glaber's, and um, and so I could say you know I'll get either of those guys, but I personally see a higher ceiling on Glaber than I do on uh, Ahmed at this point. His his his. Uh, quality of contact has been consistently poor 
Let's move on to the Tier 5 shortstops, which is basically guys outside the top 200 overall. And technically, yes, Eugenio Suarez, he played enough at shortstop to carry that eligibility over to a new season. He leads that group ADP-wise, along with Brandon Crawford, O'Neill Cruz, Josh Rojas, who's got second in outfield, Gavin Lux, who's also got second base, Nicky Lopez, who came on strong with a lot of steals late last season, Andres Jimenez, and Gio Urshela, and Jonathan Villar. This is basically the 200 to 300 range of shortstop eligible players. It turns into a little bit of a, a dumpster fire as the list goes on. I'm kind of just done with Eugenio Suarez, you know, which it's cheap power. Like I think it's low average, big power. The park's still good. There's playing time. You risk. saw that projected value though, didn't you? No, I, 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 I mean, I did, but I, on the bat. Yeah. It, it's still, it's still good. Like based on, based on that projection, Equal to you should Adamus. go. Equal to Adamus. I, I know, but it's it's the way that he gets there. It, it's lumpy. It It's a, so much power and so little batting average that you have to build the right way for it. And then I think now you have to start thinking about the possibility of him playing less than every day because they've got a crowd in the infield. A healthy Mike Moustakis, a healthy and productive Mike Moustakis could actually be a problem for Eugenio Suarez, who is only a shortstop in our game and not a shortstop in real life. Um, I will point out that, and I have no idea why or what happened, but Suarez in September was not at all the same person as he was the rest of the season. In September, his uh, fly ball percentage went through the roof and his take percentage went through the, through the, floor so he basically had a 20 percent take per like reach rate in in uh september and he had like a 50 plus percent fly ball rate and his woba went through the roof so it's i know it's just a month a month or two but there's some underlying changes and there has been some kind of like what the heck happened suarez when you've been looking at him like it was such a dramatic drop off uh, I find him risky, but anybody who projects for a $15 value that's going basically around pick 200 uh, becomes interesting to me. I just think you have to brace yourself accordingly. It's more like a Joey Gallo type addition to your roster where you want to make mm-hmm. sure you've buffered enough batting average if you're going to do it. I don't know. You, you've made a, a case better than what I've seen so far, but I'm I'm not sure I'm sold on, on Suarez even at the discounted price. You know, Brandon Crawford... I think the problem with Brandon Crawford isn't that I, it's not that I don't believe in what he did last year. It's that I think he does not have the max volume of playing time at shortstop the way a lot of other players the position do. I think he can fall into that trap of being good on a per game basis, but you do start to lose a little bit in weekly leagues where you need that extra volume of playing time to sort of max out that roster spot. I, at his signing, uh, congratulated him. Um, and actually, I don't think I was, I meant to ask him about staying at shortstop and if that had become a conversation. And in fact, someone else beat me to it. So I remember saying on Twitter, like, oh, you know, uh, his defensive stats are good. And I had, I tweeted some picture of him doing something nice defensively and was like, you know, it's kind of amazing. He's still at shortstop because of how old he is. And someone's like, of course, you know, it's Brandon Crawford. Like, why are you asking about this? So I was like, at the contract signing, 
press conference, people asked him about it. So like 100%, this dude is the oldest shortstop in baseball. And usually teams have moved on by now. And in fact, people were asking Farhan if what his plan was a shortstop going forward after he just signed Brandon Crawford. So like, <laughs> you know, like there's definitely, you know, people looking at um, who's their uh, big prospect. You know, Keith was just saying today in his top 100 that he didn't think that uh, he was going to stay. Is it Marco Luciano? Mm-hmm. He was saying that Marco Luciano might not stay at short. Um, and then Tyro Estrada was a bit of a find last year, but he's kind of a right-handed utility guy, I think, uh, in 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 terms of true talent. But I do think he might take some games away from Brandon Crawford against left-handers, and maybe more and more going forward. So we'll go more rapid fire here with these last few because we're gonna run out of time here. But we are running out of time. But I did want to say something real quick. O'Neill Cruz. Hit a ball harder than any other shortstop in baseball last year. Uh, but, you know, sometimes that Max EV can be a red herring. Uh, he, you know, maybe, you know, his second and third hit hard balls were like 106 and 108. So there's still something there. But I think, you know, in terms of upside, I love taking him down there. Um, and uh, here's, a, here's a fun one uh, that's off the, the final tier. Here's an olds. <laughs> An olds that has some stats that line up with somebody else. These two players have the same barrel rate and the same strikeout rate and the same reach rate. Paul DeYoung and Dansby Swanson, baby. Yeah, he's Paul DeYoung. There's two old guys that seemingly have bounced back potential because of their track record. DeYoung and Didi Gregorius are basically free right now. And I think if I were choosing between the two, DeYoung is the one I believe in yeah. more. And Mundo Sosa is not bad because he's multi-position eligible. Could be a nice glue guy, but I think he's a little more of a utility guy than an everyday shortstop. So I think the DeYoung thing makes a little bit of sense. The real, like, air quotes, sleepers at the position probably come from places like Houston and Cincinnati. Jeremy Pena could actually be the everyday shortstop. That is a possibility. The more I hear people in the prospect community talk about Pena, the more I believe he can do the job which matters in this case because it just means Houston doesn't necessarily have to replace Correa with Trevor Story, even though they could, even though it's not a bad idea. If they think Pena is a legitimate good defensive shortstop who could hit in the bottom third of their lineup, they've got enough offense in the rest of that lineup to just see what happens and then figure it out later if it doesn't work out. And then Jose Barrero. like I I can't get behind Kyle Farmer as a, a real everyday shortstop for another year. I know he exceeded expectations in 2021, but Barrero can play a few different spots. He's tooled up. He doesn't have a lot left to prove in the minors. I, I just think he could end up being a guy that ends up being a really productive, like sneaky productive player this year. I'm not the only person who likes him by any stretch of the imagination, but where he's going, I think he is worth the flyer. The best prospect really at the position who should play at some point is C.J. Abrams. Might not play shortstop because of Tatis, but I could see him after injuries really derailed him in 2021, becoming a big part of the Padres' offense at some point, maybe by the middle of this summer. Yeah, it is interesting because they've got some moving parts. They need some offense. It's a surprisingly soft uh, back end of the lineup there in San Diego. And if they think that Abrams can come up and give them an offensive spark, he may end up uh, playing center or, you know, playing second and pushing Cronenworth to first where they have a problem. <laughs> uh, but uh, here's a, a crazy, uh, bold prediction type uh, hot take. 
it is within the realm of projections and possibilities that Jeremy Pena has a better season than Bobby Wood Jr. next year. And that's a little bit why I'm not going to take the big risk on Bobby Witt, but I am going to take lots of little risks on Jeremy Pena. If this were radio, I would accuse you of intentionally saying that for a hot take. I know that's not what your MO is. No, I like it enough that I might I might throw it in my bold predictions, which I should be working on by now. But Yeah, well, well I think I'll you just did. I think you just worked on it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. As we mentioned, lots of multi-position eligible guys. We'll get to some of those names that we didn't really spend time on today on future episodes. As always, if you have a question, drop us an email, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. You can drop a question on this video on YouTube. Be sure to barrel up on the like button if you're watching us over there on Twitter. He's at Enoceris. I am at Derek Van Riper, and if you want to have a subscription to The Athletic, you don't have one already, get it 33% off for the first year at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.